Hey guys, my name is Marco and I want to welcome you to the second episode of Traces of Victory, where we try to explore how some of the most remarkable entrepreneurs of our past and present forged their life path. We'll try to explore their unique journeys, missteps, and the key pivotal moments they shaped their lives. My guest today is Matt Abrams. Matt is a professor in strategic communication at Stanford. He's an author and also an incredible host of probably one of the best communication and business podcasts out there called Think Smart, Talk Fast. Now, in this conversation, we discuss how to become better spontaneous communicators, how to manage anxiety, and how we can avoid some of the biggest mistakes people make when communicating. We also touch on very different topics, such as the power that prestige and money play in our lives, and what are some of the best decision frameworks that we can use to make better decisions in our lives. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation. And thank you so much for listening. Have you always loved what you were doing or when did you tell yourself, okay, finally, I found that thing that I love? As soon as I started teaching, as soon as I gave myself permission to do that. Why did you say you had to give permission to yourself? Oh, I think there's societal norms and pressure. And I, I at least in where I live and the friends that I keep, um, there was a, a premium put on, you know, having a nice car, having a nice house, having these things. And, and I had to let go of some of that because the biggest mistake of all communication is really easy, starting in the wrong place. Most people think about, here's what I want to say. When we communicate, we focus on, here is what I want to say. That's the wrong place to start. You have to think about what does your audience need to hear. How do you deal with anxiety and what can you do to improve that? It boils down to two fundamental principles. You have to focus on the symptoms and the sources. So one of the things that happens is we start saying negative things to ourselves before we speak. So I like to have a mantra. I have a saying, a positive affirmation that I say before I speak. And it's very simple. I say to myself, I'll never forget when I got my first black belt, uh, my instructor said to me, he looked me in the eye and said, congratulations, you've done very well. Now let's get started. And that was a revelation to me because I saw it as an ending, right? I got my black belt. But what I learned was the black belt was just the closing of one door, but the opening of another. Many of us want to, to get to some place and to achieve something. And in fact, it's in the pursuit of that thing or things where the real learning and the real love and experience can exist. So planning this podcast, um, I have one question that I would like to start sure. with. And the question is, how did you decide that you wanted to dedicate your life uh, to helping people improve, you know, their communication skills. Yeah, so so certainly. So I saw at several points in my life the mm -hmm. impact that communication has on people's trajectory. Mm -hmm. I saw people in places I worked, in schools I taught in, you know, when I was a student, that those who could communicate well seemed to do well. And those who maybe were as bright or brighter or had more creative ideas who couldn't communicate well were at some type of disadvantage. And 
And upon observing that, I wanted to help with that. Now, I am not saying I've always been a great communicator, mm -hmm. but I certainly, by virtue, I believe, of my last name, starting mm -hmm. with A-B, <laughs> had lots of practice communicating. So all through school, I was always called on first because teachers would always do things alphabetically. So while I might not have been the best communicator, I was certainly a seasoned communicator because I was often called on to go first. So I saw in others who weren't maybe as experienced some of the negative consequences. And I have always believed that we, uh, in our groups and our friends and our family networks, do better when we hear everybody's position and points of view. So that, that's what motivated me to hmm. study communication and to help people try to hone and improve their communication. Was there a specific moment in your childhood where you were like, okay, wow, I love um, communicating with people and it's something that maybe my teacher told me, oh, maybe you're not that good. Maybe you should improve <laughs> that. Or maybe uh, you're so good, you should continue doing that. Was there a, like a pivotal moment in your childhood that um, kind of uh, determined the, the, the direction of your life moving forward? Well, I was certainly rewarded throughout my life for at least being willing to step up and communicate. So mm -hmm. again, you know, just by happenstance of my last name, mm -hmm. I was often called on to go first. And after you get used to that for a while, you just become comfortable with it. So mm -hmm. there would be times where it wasn't in alphabetical order, but people would ask for volunteers or people to start. And, and I would do it just because I was used to it. So there certainly was reward for me in terms of being acknowledged and accepted for, for being willing to take those risks. I certainly was never, you know, I've, I am a nervous speaker, was a nervous speaker. I've learned to manage that over my time. And I've had some pretty significant embarrassing moments as a result of my anxiety around speaking. Uh, so there have certainly been negative consequences, but I'm the kind of person who's just driven when there's an issue or challenge to be worked on to, to commit to it. And so when I would be nervous, I would work to reduce that anxiety. When I would give a presentation or run a meeting that didn't go well, I would reflect and say, what can I do better next time? That's just part of who I am. And so, yes, I received positive feedback. I, I've had some really bad feedback and experiences, but all, both of those have motivated me to keep working at it. Interesting. And why did you, did you decide to go and teach at Stanford? Mm -hmm. Uh, well, I don't think one just decides to teach at Stanford and it happens. I, I you know, it's a, it's a series of, of opportunities that came and, and I took advantage of them. One of my life's philosophies is to consider opportunities that are put before me. That doesn't mean always saying yes, but at least to consider them. And I have benefited greatly from my willingness to accept opportunities as they presented themselves. So... Uh, the way I ended up at Stanford's Graduate School of Business is I was teaching in another program on campus, and some people who are staff members at the Stanford GSB took my class, mm -hmm. and they said, hey, what you're teaching is something that's really interesting to us, and we're, we're developing some programming around it at the business school. You should come talk to us, and, and I explored it and said, sure, I'll go talk to them was able to do a few workshops that, that resonated well, and that gave me an opportunity to then apply and become uh, the position I have today, which I've held now for, I think, 13 years. So again, it's an opera, you know, I was in the right place, I was doing the right thing, and when the opportunity came, I said yes to it, and it led to a, a good outcome for me. I like what you said before about 
taking opportunities in front of you, at least considering those opportunities. How do you approach thinking about the different opportunities that you have and making sure that you're making the right decision? Although maybe the opportunity that you have, it's a really good opportunity, but maybe it's not for you. How do you, do you have a process, do you have a decision-making process that you go about defining the right opportunities for yourself? So, right, the, the, the thing I'm struggling with in your question is the word right, because I don't know that, that there is a right or a wrong. There's just a, a potentially better or worse choice. Um, my wife would tell you that I'm not good at it. She says I, I say yes way too much. Um, so I don't know that I have a process that works all the time. But what I try to do, and I learned this from one of my colleagues, and, and he and his brother, Dan and Chip Heath, have written a lot of amazing books. My, one of my most go-to books on communication is called Made to Stick that they wrote. Made to but stick. they also wrote a book called Decisive. Mm -hmm. um, and in that book, they talk about decision making and they, and they talk about a tool. I don't know if they created the, I can't remember if it was their tool, but they, it's when I first encountered it, mm -hmm. where they say, imagine yourself making a decision. Okay. How will you feel 10 hours after you make the decision, 10 days after you make the decision, 10 months after you make the decision, and 10 years after you make the decision? And this has been really helpful to me. And I learned this many, many years ago. So when I have a, an opportunity before me, it might sound great in the moment, mm -hmm. but then I say, you know, later today, how am I going to feel about it? And 10 days from now. And, and it mm. just helps me put into perspective that decision. And, and it has afforded me the opportunity to say no, perhaps when my initial reaction would have been to say yes. And in other circumstances where my initial reaction was no, I thought about it and thought, you know, no, this long term might be a really good thing. So Doing that kind of thinking helps, but I, I don't know that there's a, a right choice and a wrong choice in most situations, and clearly there are some where there are, but um, in my life, it's really thinking about what's better or worse and applying that strategy to help me make the decisions. Hmm. Do you have a specific example where you were where you able to apply this technique? Uh, so I so I will give you a specific example in, in where I did apply the technique, but I applied it without knowing this technique. It happened decades before I learned the technique. One of the most significant decisions I've made that's just purely personal. I mean, certainly when I chose to, to get engaged, when, we, when I chose along with my wife to start our family, I mean, these are very significant decisions. But when I came out of high school, uh, I was very interested in movies and movie production. And I got into uh, one of the top film schools in the country, in the world wow. actually. And um, I also got into Stanford, which is where I ultimately ended up going. So I had to make the choice. Mm -hmm. Do you go to a film school, a passion that you've had and something that you always wanted to do? Or do you go to Stanford University? Not a bad second choice, right? And so uh, what I did at the time, and I, this was not like a momentary decision. I, I labored over this a long time. But ultimately, I tried to forecast myself in the future. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned, I always like to keep doors open and opportunities open. And I felt going to film school would have provided me with fewer opportunities in the future because I would have been locked into one way of doing it, at least in the short term. Mm -hmm. And so I made that choice. So I, I applied this notion of future casting where I'm trying to see myself in the future. Mm -hmm. And my metric was which of the two will provide me with the most opportunity mm -hmm. And that's what I went with. So I used a version of a technique I hadn't learned yet mm -hmm. back then. I think it's very really unique, the ability to 
see yourself in the future and see how right. you will feel, yeah. how you will react. You know, before, while I was doing this, uh, preparing this podcast, uh, I was able to read uh, the, the PDF uh, from your book that is going to come out in September, which I'm so excited. Uh, well, thank and you. I was able to pre-order the book. Uh, and Great. it was very super. It was very interesting to read the you know the the first uh, you know ten pages, and uh, I like the the idea of the book because there is something that I read that I was like, wow, I like that. You said something <laughs> like, "Life is not a TED talk." Matt, I love I love that. It is so <laughs> true. It is so true. And. Uh, I just want to talk a little bit more now about you know communication and uh, what sure. I think is probably one of the most important things ever, which is spontaneous communication. And yeah. uh, I want to talk about what do you mean when when you when you say life is is not a TED talk. So I mean, so first and and think faster, talk smarter. My new book. I'm I'm making the argument that most of our communication is not planned and practiced. It is in the moment. You're at, you ask me a question, I need to respond. You ask me for feedback, I need to give feedback. We're meeting for the first time and we make small talk. These are all in the moment types of communication. And if you think about it, most of our communication in our personal and professional lives is of that type. It's not the big talk you give in mm -hmm. front of the company or in front of the prospect or, or client. And so we need to think about what we can do to be better, more confident in those circumstances. And yet many of us hold in our heads this standard of what good communication is. And a lot of people say it's, it's these people giving these TED Talks. And, and I think TED Talks are wonderful. I, yeah. I have done several. I have coached many people who speak on the TED stage. So I'm not speaking poorly of TED Talks. They are just not representative of reality for what most of us have to do. And if we're judging our success based on that, that's hard. It's like, imagine you're playing basketball and you are going to judge your success against Stephen Curry or LeBron James. I mean, that's just not the right metric to, to be comparing yourself to because you're probably not at that level. And, and also TED Talks are highly rehearsed and practiced and often memorized. And, and while that's useful for those types of talks, that's not reality for what most of us do. So when I say life is not a TED Talk, what I'm really saying is we need to find the right criteria against which to judge and develop our spontaneous speaking. If you want to take do a TED Talk, great. I think they're fantastic. You learn a lot about yourself. You have an opportunity to share with lots of people. But most of us in our day-to-day -day communication aren't doing that. What are some ingredients that you can sprinkle on top of what you would call this big pizza of being spontaneous? What are some of the main ingredients that make a great spontaneous communicator? Well, I think I can show you ingredients for spontaneous speaking. I certainly can't share ingredients with a, with somebody who's in Italy right now with what makes for a good pizza topping. I'm going to leave that to you uh, compared to me. Um, but but in terms of spontaneous speaking, you know, a few things. So at the highest level, it's about mindset and messaging. Mm -hmm. A lot of us do two things from a mindset perspective, which get in our way, that actually preclude us from s speaking well. And one is we want to be perfect. We mm -hmm. want to do it right. And, and that's that TED Talk mentality I mentioned. Rather, we just need to give ourselves permission to do it. Mm -hmm. When we want to do it right, 
we actually activate a lot of our brain processing to judge and evaluate what we're saying while we're saying it. Mm -hmm. And that actually reduces the ability to do it well mm -hmm. because we just can't focus enough resources to do it well. So the, the first ingredient is to get out of your own way, mm -hmm. to just do what needs to be done and not worry about doing it perfectly. The second mindset ad uh, adjustment we have to make is to see our communication when spontaneous as an opportunity. Mm -hmm. Many of us, when we say, oh, there's going to be a Q&A or you have to give your feedback at the end of the meeting, we don't say, oh, great, that's so exciting. <laughs> we think, oh, no, I have to protect myself. I have to defend myself. Mm -hmm. and, and that gets in the way. So the second ingredient for our spontaneous speaking pizza is <laughs> see, see the communication as an opportunity. Okay. There are many others I could talk about, but those are two of the big ones. And then when it comes to messaging, what's really important is to have a logical structure to it. Mm -hmm. Rambling just does not work, right? Many of us, when we have to speak spontaneously, take our audience on a journey of our deciding what to say as we're saying it that gets distracting, right? I'm thinking about my answer. I'm talking and talking and talking. That's not helpful. I have to mm -hmm. package it up in an effective way. So those would be the top three ingredients. And if you can put those together, you're going to have a pretty successful spontaneous uh, speech and maybe even a pretty good pizza. And uh, what would you say, what, what do you think are the main, the most important structures? How would you structure, mm -hmm. do, do you have a framework that you use when you engage in mm -hmm. spontaneous communications? Absolutely. I've used one repeatedly as you and I have been talking. Uh, my favorite one of all is three simple questions. What? So what? And now what? If you answer those three questions, you can actually very effectively communicate a point. So as I've been talking to you and you've asked me questions, so, so let's, let's take, for example, mm -hmm. when I talked about this notion of trying to do it right, being perfect. So I told you what it was. I said many of us strive to do this. Mm -hmm. And then I explained why that's not a good idea. That's the so what. And then the now what I said is we need to instead just do it and get the point across. That's the now what. So I told you what? Mm -hmm why it's important, so what, and now what, what we can do next. So it's a great way of packaging things up when you're answering a question, when you're providing an update, when you're describing something. So I love the structure, like what, that. so what, now what? I feel like it's, it's a structure that can become very flexible. They can be used yeah, in it is very, ways. I call it I call it the Swiss army knife of this. structures because <laughs> you can use it for so many things. Can, can, can you also use it when uh, introducing yourself? Because I, I, uh -huh. I, think, I think that one of the most uh, you know, asked questions ever is, you know, so what do you do? You know, what do you do for a living? And sometimes I kind of, uh, um, I struggle to answer that question in an interesting way. So can you use that framework uh, to answer this question? So what do you do for a living? So I have a very strong bias towards how I think people should introduce themselves. Uh, I'm not a big fan of hi, my name is. Uh, I think that's distracting and, and not supportive of what you're trying to accomplish. So I like starting with um, a what or a so what when I introduce myself. So when I introduce myself, I'll say something like, I'm someone who's really passionate about communication. My name is Matt, and I'm really excited to meet all of you or to be part of this panel or whatever, um, simply because... If I start with some provocative or clear statement like that, I can actually be emotional. You can, you can sense that. So when I say I'm really excited about communication, that informs you about something. That draws you in. That, that connects with you at an emotional level. When I say, hi, my name is, there's nothing connective about that. 
And chances are you'll remember my name more when I frame it first by something that's important uh, to me. So, so I, I like introducing using what, so what, now what. Start with something provocative. Tell mm -hmm. who you are. Then tell what you're hoping to get out of the experience and, and what you're looking forward to next. So what, so what, now what can be a really powerful way to introduce yourself. How do you overcome this feeling of anxiety? I know that you know it's, it's it's usually this big question, but for example, me preparing for this podcast, you know, I have a little bit of anxiety. You know, I feel uh, that you know I'm speaking with somebody that you know I admire. I've watched so many uh, so many videos on YouTube. I like the content that you're putting out, and I want to create a good podcast that people hopefully can consume um, and that can, you know can be helpful. How do you deal with this sense of uh, anxiety and uh, what can you do to improve that? So uh, first, thank you. I appreciate the compliment. Uh, I, um, I, I, I do not intend to make people nervous, but I understand by virtue of what I do, people become more sensitive to their communication. Um, and anxiety is very real. You're certainly not alone. Most people feel nervous. And in fact, feeling nervous is not a bad thing. It tells you what you're doing is important. It, mm -hmm. it gives you energy and helps you focus. I know this is quite late in your day. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet the excitement and perhaps anxiety is helping give you that energy. So that's a good thing. The problem is when we don't manage our anxiety mm -hmm. and that takes over. So when it comes to managing anxiety, my first book I wrote called Speaking Up Without Freaking Out is all about techniques how to do this. It boils down to two fundamental principles. You have to focus on the symptoms and the sources. So let me ask you, Marco. So when I get nervous, I turn red and I perspire. I, I sweat. What happens for you when you get nervous? What happens to your body? So when I get nervous, I think, no, I think, I know my heart uh, yeah. You know, pumps yeah, a lot. Really boom, beats. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah, yeah, it beats a lot. Yeah. And uh, I shake a little bit. Sure. Yeah. And That's very uh, I normal. Sweat. I sweat. Yeah, yeah. Very normal and natural. Uh, we can talk about this if you wish, but we can, or we can just take it as a truism yeah, absolutely. That, yeah. that many of us, many of us get nervous. Uh, when we get nervous, it's because our body is experiencing our being having to speak as a threat. We feel mm -hmm. threatened by it. And that's where the fight or flight response comes from. Mm -hmm. So everything you're describing, everything I'm describing is the same if you're under threat in lots of different situations. If um, you are lost and you're trying to, to get back, you might feel this. If somebody's threatening you physically with harm, you might feel the same responses. So there's some things we can do. First and foremost, taking deep breaths. Deep breaths will slow down your heart rate. When I say deep breaths, I mean like what you do if you've ever done yoga or Tai mm -hmm. Chi, deep belly breaths. It slows down your autonomic nervous system, slows down your heart rate. That can help. Uh, getting shaky, as you described, this is your the adrenaline that your body is producing to help move you. Adrenaline gives you energy. Its sole purpose is to move you from threat towards safety. So if you're somebody who gets a lot of adrenaline and a lot of shakiness, move in your communication in a purposeful way. So if I'm standing in front of a meeting, I might step forward and welcome everybody. That movement gives that energy a place to go. If you're virtual, you might lean forward or you might gesture more. That kind of movement allows the adrenaline to dissipate. When we sweat, we sweat because we're getting hotter. If you think about it, your heart's beating faster, your body tenses up when you're nervous, you're pushing more blood through tighter tubes. It's, in other words, your blood pressure goes up. It's, 
it's like you're exercising. And most people, when they exercise, they turn red a little bit and they perspire. Mm -hmm. So we need to cool ourselves down. And the best way to cool yourself down is to hold something cold in the palms of your hand. The palms of your hand are thermoregulators for your body. Just like if you've ever had a fever and you put a cold compress on your forehead mm -hmm. to cool you down, it works. I bet in, in a cold morning, Marco, I bet you've held warm tea or coffee or you, yeah, I sure. guess you all drink cappuccino, right? Yeah. You hold something warm and it warms you up, right? Yeah. So we're just doing the same thing in reverse. So the bottom line is there's some things we can do to manage the symptoms and the sources of anxiety so that we feel less nervous, which helps us feel more comfortable. Hmm. You also um, tell yourself something. Do you ask yourself questions? Is that also yeah. maybe a technique that you can use? Maybe ask yourself. You have yourself listened to my material. Yes. So there, so there are a lot of things that go on in our minds when we get nervous. So one of the things that happens is we, we start saying negative things to ourselves before we speak. We say things like, oh, I should have prepared more, or I'm not as good as Marco is when he presents, or why am I doing this? Why isn't somebody? So we start saying all of this negative stuff to ourselves and we start believing it and it distracts us. So it gets in the way of being the best we can. So I like to have a mantra. I have a saying, a positive affirmation that I say before I speak. And it's very simple. I say to myself, I have value to bring. I have value to bring. I'm not saying I'm the best speaker ever. I'm just saying there's value here. People have come to hear me speak or in the meeting, I'm speaking because I know something that will help them. So when I think that way, it sets me up for greater success. So I encourage everybody to do two things. One, just listen to what we say to ourselves when we speak or right before. And for many of us, it's negative. Mm -hmm. And then find a way to cancel that out in a positive affirmation or some positive statement like, I have value to bring, or I know what I'm talking about, or I did pretty well last time, whatever it is. Athletes all the time before they mm -hmm. perform do something very similar. So that can be really helpful for your mindset as you go into these circumstances. Hmm. Have you found that maybe the same technique can be applied when uh, feeling a little bit lost in life? Have you ever felt a little bit yeah. lost in life? Oh, absolutely. I've uh, Lots of times, lots and lots of times. Um, yeah. So I think reminding yourself of a, of a purpose that you have or a directionality that you have, I think that's important. You know, Carol Dweck is very famous for uh, mindset and she, mm -hmm. she talks about growth versus fixed mindset. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that she says, and I love, is this notion of people who have a growth mindset, that is people who are trying to expand and grow mm -hmm. uh, personally, professionally, uh, this notion of not yet. And I think not yet is so powerful. And here's why. You know, if you're not good at something, it's not because you're a bad person or you'll never be good at it. It's because it's not for you right now, not yet. So if you work at it, if you commit to it, you're going to get better. So when I in my life have struggled or wasn't sure about my direction, uh, I might just say, not yet. That job's not for me, not yet. Not that it's never for me, but not now, not yet. Um, and so that helps me stay focused on the goal or trajectory I'm going on without getting too depressed or, real, or, or thinking that, that I'm not capable of something. Uh, so I like this idea of not yet. I like this idea of having a positive affirmation to get through those tough times.
And how do you, because, you know, sometimes uh, one of the things that I tend to do is that I tend to overthink about things. Mm-hmm. And uh, yep. uh, sometimes uh, um, I feel lost. I don't know exactly mm-hmm. what I want to be doing yeah. next. And sure. uh, I see myself applying this concept of uh, not yet, you know, Time mm-hmm. will come. If I work hard, yeah. if I continue, time will come. Mm-hmm. But then how can you not get overwhelmed by the feeling of uh, time is passing? Oh, my gosh, I haven't figured yeah. out yet, even though you internalize and you say, okay, not yet. But then at the same time, yeah. feel a little bit overwhelmed because, you know, time is passing. Maybe you see other people doing, you know, you know better, but, you know, moving forward. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if it's ever, ever happened to you. Oh, of course. No, it happens to me all the time. I, uh, I have tremendous fear of missing out, FOMO, and that's predicated on what you're describing. So I am not the expert who can give good advice on this. I struggle with this all the time. Uh, yeah, but what I, what I try to do in those moments is I try to ground myself. <clears throat> I try to ground myself in the present moment. Because everything you've just described is future thinking, right? This isn't happening now. It could be this. Look at those other people. None of that's in the moment. So if I can ground myself in the moment, and again, I I am not a master of this in it by any means. Um, I have spent many decades of my life studying the martial arts. And part of the reason I like the martial arts is they teach me so much about life. And if I am working with somebody else, practicing some moves, etc. If I start worrying about, am I doing this right? Or what should I do? You know, this other person's better than me, or what if this happens? In the martial arts, you get feedback right away. And often that feedback hurts, <laughs> literally. And so I have learned in those moments of self-doubt, in those moments of, of feeling like I'm missing out or not up to my potential, to ground myself in the present. And that's what works in the martial arts is to become very present, adjust and adapt to what's needed in that moment. Again, not an expert, but definitely that's a trajectory that I try to follow. <laughs> so I try not to say something to myself in those moments. I, I make a distinction and this is not my distinction. I learned this uh, from my martial arts instructor. There's a difference between responding and reacting. Reacting literally means to act again. And if I think it, that means I'm reacting. If I experience it in the moment, then I'm responding. So I try in those moments not to say, be present, because by virtue of saying, be present, I'm not present. So I just try to be present without saying something. What lessons are you taking from the martial arts to life, but also to communication? Sure. So there are many, there are many. Let me, let me highlight just a few. One is this notion of be present. Um, you know, when people think of the martial arts, they think of violence, they think of intensity, but there's an artistic side to the martial arts. And I actually find some of the, the ways people move in the martial arts to be beautiful. Uh, it's like watching somebody perform gymnastics or dance where you appreciate the artistic side of it, but that requires being present and fully committed. And, and so I've learned to appreciate life in that way and and to try to emulate some of that. Uh, The martial arts are a great example of the different types of communication. So in most training in the martial arts, there are forms uh, and some styles they call them kata. 
And those are pre-described sets of movements. It's like a dance routine where you do the same thing repeatedly. There are also moves where you interact with somebody, where you, um, it's completely spontaneous. It could be sparring, it could be other types of drills where there's no set of preordained moves. You just respond to what the other person is doing. And then there's something in the middle where there are these techniques that you learn which teach you combinations of certain moves that tend to go nicely together. And that exactly replicates to communication. There are planned and scripted communication there are spontaneous communication where it's just happening in the moment. Think of small talk or somebody asking you a question and you having to answer. And then there's communications that are sort of scripted in a certain way. Think of a meeting where, where there's an agenda that you're following. There's a set order, but what happens within that order sort of varies. So I think my training in the martial arts helped me become fluid in adjusting among those different types of martial arts training, which I absolutely believe have helped me better and more fluidly adjust to the different types of communication that I experience. And what about in life in general? Yeah, well, the same thing is true in life. Some things in life are scripted and other things are a little less scripted. I, I think what the martial arts have taught me is uh, there's always area for improvement. I'll never forget when I got my first black belt, uh, my instructor said to me, he looked me in the eye and said, congratulations, you've done very well. Now let's get started. And that was a revelation to me because I saw it as an ending, right? I got my black belt. But what I learned was the black belt was just the closing of one door, but the opening of another. And I, I now have a fifth degree black belt. I've studied for many, many years since. And I, and I absolutely see how much more I have to learn. And so that taught me a really valuable lesson about life. You know, many of us want to, to get to some place and to achieve something. And in fact, it's in the pursuit of that thing or things where the real learning and the real love and experience can exist. And, and that's definitely a life lesson that the martial arts have taught me. Why martial arts? Why not doing any other sports? Well, so I've tried other sports. I wasn't very good at them. Um, it, it's, it's actually very, very personal. I have a cousin still, who, who's still around. Uh, he's 10 years older than I am. And he did, he did the martial arts. And I was always fascinated. I always grew up respecting him. I, I idolized him and saw what he could do. And so that became very attractive to me. And there was a time in my life right before I went into high school where I was very insecure. You know, I went, I, I'm very fortunate. I grew up in a very safe area with good people, but I was very afraid of, of uh, somebody doing harm to me. And so at the, you know, there were two, one was to learn self-defense and the other was to emulate my cousin. And, and then I got the bug, right? I did it for a while and got really uh, addicted and loved it. And that's, that's what I've continued. Um, and, you know, I, I'm very thankful because I think being, um, doing exercise and being athletic is important to sanity. You can't just always live in your head. And the martial arts uh, uh, is one sport that you can do throughout your life. You have to adjust and adapt as you get older and, you know, things happen. But some sports you can't do, you know, the whole, mm -hmm. your whole life. And, and, and you also need other people in some yeah. sports. In the martial arts, you no, can I... do more solitary. So it's a good life mm -hmm. Uh, health thing too. I understand you completely. I think martial arts, for example, I love windsurfing and surfing. And I think martial uh -huh. arts, yeah. martial arts is one of the sports where for that specific moment where you're training, 
you, you're not thinking yeah. about anything in life. It's not like running, yeah. you know, because sometimes you run, yeah. but you keep thinking about life and things that happen, you know. Yeah. But when you're windsurfing, yeah. you're just super present in the moment. And there's, there's so much That's beauty. That's exactly right. There's so much beauty in that. Yeah, there's... Um, I'm a, I, I am very fascinated by, by this, by this notion of flow yeah. and the flow state when you're just in the moment and, and you're so enraptured with what you're doing. And I think windsurfing, surfing, martial arts can help you get into that flow state in a way that other activities hmm. might not. Interesting. I'm interested now about the flow state. How do you yeah. start a conversation and then, uh, you move forward and you try to get into the flow with the other person so that you both yeah. are together and at the end you feel as if, oh my gosh, yeah. such, a, such a wonderful conversation. How do you do it? Yeah. Uh, so it's hard. It's hard. But I think having that intent, intent. is the beginning. Is, is A lot of us in conversation see it like a tennis match or a volleyball match where my whole goal is just to send something your way and then you got to deal with okay. it, right? And if I do it well, maybe I score a point. But that's not what what connecting and being in the moment is all about. It's about having a shared experience. So I don't know if in Italy, I don't know what the game is called. Here in the United States, we call it hacky sack. It's where you, you it, there's, a, there's a little bean bag and you stand in a circle with people and the goal is just to kick the bean bag back and forth without it hitting the ground. So I am being successful if I toss it to I've seen people do this with soccer balls or foot, you know, what you all call football, um, where the goal is just to pass it back and forth keeping it above the ground without it hitting the ground. And yet we're all working together to collaborate to have that happen, right? And that's very different than tennis where I'm trying to hit a ball and score on you. In this game, the whole game is to keep work together to keep it up. So it's in my best interest to position the ball for you so you can easily get it to position it back to me. Very different. And if you go into communication with that approach, then you're going to be more connective. You're going to be more inviting. You know, if if we're doing a podcast interview and my goal is to help you be successful in this, you know, then when you ask me a question, I'm going to accept that question and I'm going to expand on that question. You know, if, if I'm seeing this as a competition, you ask me a question, I'm going to say, that's a stupid question. Or I'm just going to answer the question I wanted. And all of a sudden we're not in this flow state. So there's this notion of working together to move things forward. Uh, and, and this is, the, if you know anything about improvisation, this is the famous yes and idea that comes in improv where mm -hmm. my goal is to keep things moving so when you present something to me I say yes and I don't say no now clearly you don't say yes to everything that can get you in trouble but you at least approach your communication with this idea of I want to collaborate versus I want to defend and be right and that's how you that's part of how you get into this flow state what kind of skills do you need to develop uh, when running a podcast and do you see some parallels between uh, impromptu uh, and uh, spontaneous communication. How do you apply everything together when running a podcast, especially when doing remotely? Because doing in person, I think it's just way better and you just have a deeper connect connection with the other person. But when you're doing remotely, it's, kind of, it's, it's super, it's harder. So I, two things come to mind. First, the, the, the irony of spontaneous speaking is you have to plan for mm -hmm. it. And, and that sounds ironic, but it's really important, right? You know, if, let's go back to the soccer or football analogy. You know, if you want to get good at soccer or football, you do a lot of dribbling around cones. You do a lot of drills. Why is that? So when you're in the moment playing the game, you have some skills to leverage to help you. So we have to plan. We have to practice to be spontaneous. Hmm. 
And in podcasting, I do that. So when I have a guest on, I think I, I do research on them. Sounds like you've done that for me. I craft some questions to give me that roadmap, that structure I talked about, but I'm not so wedded to it that if something happens in the moment, I don't miss it. I, I prevent myself from exploring it. I, I do. I follow up on it. I am virtually certain that in this conversation, Marco, you did not expect to talk about martial arts. You know, this was interesting. But it came yeah. up. Yeah, but it came up and you said, great, you know, I have my list of questions. I know what I want to talk to Matt about. He said martial art and I'm going to go down that path. That's that notion of having plans mm -hmm. so that you can then be spontaneous. If you had no plans, that could freak you out. It's like, oh my goodness, now I'm talking about martial yeah. arts. What's that about? But you know how to bring it back. So that's one way mm -hmm. that everything we've talked about helps me in podcasting. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that's critical, I think, to, I think the most important skill of a podcaster is listening. Listening. You know, we think about it as speaking and asking good questions, and that's all important. Mm. But listening is the most important thing. And you've done a really good job in my mind oh, where I'll say you. something, <laughs> and then your next question will connect to something that I said. Mm. And that demonstrates that you're listening. That validates. That's, you know, I've been on a lot of podcasts where people just have their next question. Mm. It doesn't matter what I say. They're going to ask me their next question. But if you can connect mm -hmm. To me, into the next question, then all of a sudden we're having a conversation. Mm. We're not just going through your to-do list mm. of questions. So those are the two big things that I think come from spontaneous speaking. Mm. Uh, you have to prepare mm. and you have to listen well. And what do you think is the biggest mistake uh, when in spontaneous speaking? The biggest mistake of all communication is really easy, starting in the wrong place. Most people think about here is what I want to say. When we communicate, we focus on here is what I want to say. That's the wrong place to start. You have to think about what does your audience need to hear? You know, it, the goal is not just to get through your material. Your goal is for somebody to learn something, to be moved by what you say, to have some kind of experience. And if I'm not focused on you and your needs, then I've missed the target. So the biggest mistake people make in all communication, planned or spontaneous, is not focusing on the audience and their needs. Hmm. What's the biggest lesson that I'm going to be... Um, do you think you you have in the book that is coming in September that the biggest one that you feel that it's is like is like the diamond inside the cave? <laughs> yeah, so that's so hard. I mean, you've seen the book and it's full. I hope you felt this way. It's full of very specific tactical advice, and and so it's hard for me to pick one. I think if I were to abstract it to the highest level, is that you can do things through preparation and mindset adjustments to become a better spontaneous speaker. So it is within your power and, and control to improve and become a more confident, compelling, in the moment speaker and at the highest level. So I hope that people, after reading the book, after applying some of the techniques, that they, that they experience that, that they see I am a better communicator as a result of having done this. And so that, to me, is probably mm. the biggest, the biggest one. desired takeaway. I also think that it takes a lot of preparation and it's something that you yeah. work uh, forever. I agree. I, I, think, I think, yeah, I, I don't think there's, yeah, just like in the martial arts, there is no perfect and there is no perfection it is the striving for perfection that is important and the same is true in communication so i wanted to finish with only two questions uh, i have a question that is something that you mentioned at the very beginning of the podcast and i know that it's personal but i wanted to ask you and if you feel comfortable sharing uh, your answer uh, how do you know when you're ready to start a family
you mentioned that you took a is the, the, you you had a big decision of you know starting a family, and uh, when do you know that is the right time to do so? That is a really really challenging question for me. I think it's a very personal thing for everybody uh, when they start a family. I personally, I'll talk to to my uh, own experience. So. Uh, I always knew I wanted to be a father. It was just something that that I had always respected my own father and and seeing others. So for me, it wasn't if it was a matter of when. And uh, my wife and I both um, talked a lot about it, and and we wanted to make sure that we had an environment and a relationship that would support it. And uh, we wanted to have a little bit of life lived before we did it too. So our, we had children in, in our early 30s. Uh, a lot of our friends had did so earlier. Um, but really, um, we wanted to, to be in a place where we could support, not just financially, but just emotionally uh, having children. So uh, for me, it was more intuitive than, than you know there was some set script. But if that's a question for you, then I think you first have to think about, um, are you in a place where you're willing to let go of a lot of things? Because I think to be a good parent is all about seeing success in your kids, which means you have to let go of some of who you are and your identity changes. And if you're ready for that and your partner is ready for that, then I, I think it, it's something to consider. Not to say you can't have families without having partners, but I'll tell you, uh, having kids is hard enough with two people I can't, you know, I, I have the utmost respect for people who single parent because it's hard as it is. And how do you place your career in uh, your life? Is that a, is, is your career a, has a big space in your life or? Probably too much, too much. I, I am so passionate for what I do. I spend a lot of time doing it, but I'm very fortunate because I love what I do. And, and I, I have the opportunity to expand and extend what I do to whatever level I want. So I, I do a lot, but I really love it. And, and it also allows me to connect with people like yourself and others, which is something I also love. If I were locked in a room just looking at, uh, you know, spreadsheets, I would have a very different opinion. But uh, no, my career and my life are pretty integrated. I, and it, too much so. I mean, I, I, I work too much um, and need to have better balance. But uh, I also love everything I do. And it would be hard for me to stop doing some of it. Have you always loved what you were doing or when did you told yourself, okay, finally, I found that thing that I love? As soon as I started teaching. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I worked, I, I did lots of roles before I ended up teaching fully and uh, I love teaching and I love teaching not just because I like having knowledge to transmit, although I do enjoy that. I love learning and teaching. You learn, teachers learn so, I think good teachers learn so much more from their students than the, the other way around. And, and I just love learning and the opportunity to connect with people and learn. So as soon as I let that into my life, and at least here in the United States, teachers don't get well compensated and in some cases aren't that well respected, which is a shame. And I, I think that should absolutely change. Um, you don't go into teaching for those things. You don't go in for money and prestige. You do it because you want to help people and that you derive value from the experience. And as soon as I gave myself permission to do that, uh, my my work life became a true pleasure. Why did you say you had to give permission to yourself? Oh, I think there's societal norms and pressure. And I, I at least in where I live and the friends that I keep, um, there was a, a premium put on 
you know, having a nice car, having a nice house, having these things. And, and I had to let go of some of that because to be a teacher, those aren't necessarily what become available to you. And so I had to let go of that. Um, and, and upon doing so found great pleasure in the work I do and, and some success at doing it. So, um, for me, it was about letting that go, um, to be set, to do to be more fulfilled. So, what's what's been your relationship with uh, money? I don't I don't I don't get the sense that it's something that it's the most important thing in your life. No, it's no, no, and it's not. It's not. I mean, I I I want my my whole goal is to not have to worry all the time about finances. Mm -hmm. And if I can be in a place where I don't have to do that, that's what's most important to me. Mm -hmm. I have made many choices in mm -hmm. my life where I have taken the path that is away from money uh, to do other things, but I, I certainly don't want to be having to worry about money every moment. So, so my relationship is it is a necessary evil, mm -hmm. one that I don't want to worry about, but I'm not going to optimize for making money. That's you not know, what drives me. I ask me. you because I see many people my age that are just obsessed with uh, just making money for the yeah. sake of making money. And sometimes uh, I ask yeah. myself, uh, I don't, I don't, sometimes I don't understand the point, you know? So I was just curious to understand uh, how you see yeah, so your money in your own life. As, as somebody who has been around a little while longer than you, Marco, the, one, the last thing I'll say here is that um, there aren't a lot of tangible metrics to measure success and stuff and money provides that. So in a world where people want to see if they're doing okay, when they need that external validation, then it makes sense to pursue money. Uh, I think as you as people get older and a little wiser, it becomes less about the external validation of success and it becomes more about the internal assessment of success. And for me, it's about fulfillment. And for me, it's about learning and teaching. Uh, I was not always that way, certainly not. But uh, as I've gotten older, I, I have optimized for the latter and not the former. Wonderful, Matt. Uh, yeah. Fantastic. Uh, well, thank you so much for, I think we can end the podcast here on a beautiful sure. note. And my last question uh, is, is there anything that you think uh, I could improve for my next, hopefully my next podcast guest? <laughs> you're great. I mean, you're great. I love your energy. I love your thoughtfulness. Um, you have a, a verbal tick that you can work on, which is uh, at the end of many of my answers, you said interesting. Um, okay. I think there are other of ways to respond uh, beyond just saying that. I, it's a very normal human thing to do to signal that I've heard you and I'm moving on. Mm. Um, but uh, that's the only what thing could, that I notice. I Otherwise, uh, you you do a great job and I, feel, I felt very comfortable. You asked me some very personal questions, but I felt comfortable answering them for you because of the environment mm. you set up. And that's that's not easy. Uh, believe me, as somebody who's been on a mm. lot of podcasts recently, not everybody does that. Oh, thank you so much, yeah. Matt. Thank you so much. It's uh, it's it's been a pleasure. And what what, what could I do to improve uh, um, this stick that I have? Instead of saying interesting, I would try paraphrasing. I, I would try when when somebody says something, highlight something they said, and then move on from there. Because what you're what you're doing when you say interesting is you're saying I heard you. And another way to say I heard you is to just you. repeat back something they said, not verbatim. But, um, you know, so when I told you my martial arts story, instead of saying interesting, you could have said, sounds like the martial arts were really important for you, right? Hmm. And I'm not saying paraphrase every answer, 
but I'm also saying you should not say interesting to every answer. The best way to uh, learn more is to go to mattabrahams.com. Everything I do is there. If you're a LinkedIn user, uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. Otherwise, I hope you join in like you do with Marco's podcast to mine, Think Fast, Talk Smart. And the book, because I'm not that creative with names, is simply called Think Faster, Talk Smarter.